Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Indiana Lawyer Editor Olivia Covington, in for Jordan Morey as your host this week. Thanks for joining us. It's almost election day, so to help you prepare to cast your ballot, we've brought in a special guest to discuss the major issues that will be at play on November 8th. But before we get to that conversation, we have your top legal news from the last couple of weeks. Let's get started with a recap of that news. Today is Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022, and these are your headlines. To start us off, here's Indiana lawyer reporter Katie Stancombe with a follow-up to a headline she first reported on last week. One of the Indiana Convention Center's largest ballrooms was brimming with hundreds of Hoosiers who traveled to Indianapolis on October 21st to discuss mental health. Nearly 1,000 people from 92 counties met at the first Indiana Mental Health Summit to tackle mental health issues plaguing their communities and criminal justice systems. The summit, hosted by the Indiana Supreme Court, brought together all three branches of government and stakeholders from a variety of sectors, ranging from judicial and law enforcement officers to county commissioners and behavioral health experts. Stakeholders discussed the need to create an effective infrastructure to better target Indiana's mental health crises, future legislative initiatives to prioritize mental health funding, and more. An awareness of the mental health issue in Indiana is at a level that Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb says he has never seen before. He pointed to the hundreds of people gathered for the summit, saying it proves that a one-size-fits-all approach doesn't work. The way we're going to crack the code on this is through teamwork and through coordination and being well-conducted, and the funding will obviously be a part of that. The cost of untreated mental illness in Indiana totals $4.2 billion annually, according to the Indiana Behavioral Health Commission's final report released in September. Justice Christopher Goff led much of the discussion during the summit, stressing the importance of investing in local and state Justice Reinvestment Advisory Councils, or JRACs, to improve community responses to mental illness. Check out the next edition of Indiana Lawyer to find out more about how Hoosier communities are seeking to collaborate to address mental health needs. Back to you, Olivia. Like Katie mentioned, she'll have more coverage from the summit in our November 9th issue, so be sure to grab your copy next week. Shifting to court news, I have an update to a case that I've been following for more than three years at this point. Brandon Kaiser, the man convicted of battery in a 2019 shooting that involved four Indiana judges, has been sentenced to serve eight years in prison. Kaiser's total sentence is 16 years, but only eight of those are executed. Kaiser was convicted of multiple charges of felony battery, plus a misdemeanor charge of carrying a handgun without a license. The 2019 shooting involved Clark County Judge Bradley Jacobs, Clark County Magistrate Judge William Dawkins, and former judges Andrew Adams and Sabrina Bell. Adams and Jacobs were both shot and hospitalized after Kaiser shot them in the parking lot of a downtown Indianapolis White Castle. The exact cause of the shooting is still unclear, but what is clear is that Adams, Jacobs, Kaiser, and Kaiser's nephew, Alfredo Vasquez, were fighting with each other in the White Castle parking lot before Kaiser opened fire. Kaiser was sentenced on October 21st, and on October 24th, Marion County Judge Chatrice Flowers appointed indigent counsel for his appeal. That means there could be more coming in this case, so stay tuned as I watch the docket for updates. In federal court news, the FedEx Corporation has been dismissed from a lawsuit filed after eight people were fatally shot at a FedEx facility near the Indianapolis airport last year. 
On April 15, 2021, Brandon Scott Hull opened fire at the FedEx ground facility and killed eight employees before taking his own life. The families of five of those employees sued various FedEx entities in a security company in April 2022, alleging the defendants failed to exercise ordinary care in carrying out their duties on the day of the shooting and in the days prior. But on October 17th, Indiana Southern District Court Judge James Sweeney dismissed the FedEx Corporation and three of its entities from that lawsuit, according to the Associated Press. Sweeney ruled that the federal court does not have jurisdiction over the case because it falls under Indiana law, specifically the Indiana Workers' Compensation Act. However, Sweeney's order did not dismiss the final defendant, Securitas Security Services. Securitas did not file a motion to dismiss, but has filed an answer to the complaint. An attorney for the plaintiffs says they will, quote, pursue any avenue that's available to us. At the time I'm recording this, the plaintiffs hadn't filed a notice of appeal, but I'll let you know if that changes. Staying in the federal courts, we have an update on the Indiana lawsuit that's scheduled for U.S. Supreme Court arguments next week. That case involves the Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County, which was sued by the family of a patient who lived in a Valparaiso nursing home that HHC owns. After an adverse ruling from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, HHC is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to reconsider precedent, upholding an implied right to bring lawsuits under Section 1983, a civil rights provision in federal code. The specific issue is whether patients can use Section 1983 to enforce the rights listed in the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act. HHC's argument has caused a lot of backlash from advocacy groups, but the case has also raised issues under Indiana's open-door law. In fact, on October 24th, HHC was sued for violating the open-door law by filing a cert petition without getting board approval at a public meeting. Indiana Public Access Counselor Luke Britt had previously determined that HHC violated the open-door law. Now, Morgan Daly of the Indiana Statewide Independent Living Council, the same person who filed a complaint with Britt's office, has filed a civil complaint in Marion Superior Court. That complaint names HHC board members as defendants and seeks declaratory judgment, a civil penalty, and attorney fees and costs. Indiana lawyer senior reporter Marilyn Odendahl has been following the HHC case closely at all levels, both federal and state. So check back with our website for her periodic updates from the courts. One more update from the federal courts. On October 21st, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals imposed a stay on the Biden administration's plan to forgive billions of dollars in federal student loan debt. That move came after other courts rejected other legal challenges to the debt forgiveness plan. According to the AP, the Eighth Circuit imposed the stay while it considers an appeal from six Republican-led states that are challenging Biden's plan. The states are appealing after a Missouri district court determined they lack standing to bring their case. The appellate court has ordered the Biden administration not to act on the loan forgiveness program while it considers the appeal. The website studentaid.gov where borrowers can apply for loan forgiveness, now includes a disclaimer saying the application remains open, but debt discharge is currently paused. The disclaimer also says the government will continue to process applications during the pause, and borrowers will not have to reapply if the program is allowed to proceed. Also on October 21st, the Indiana Southern District Court dismissed a complaint filed by an Indiana attorney who is challenging the loan forgiveness program. A notice of appeal has been filed to the Seventh Circuit. 
Clearly, this issue is a moving target, but we'll follow the various cases and bring you updates as we get them. Check back with our website periodically for those updates. To wrap up today's headlines, here again is Katie Stancomb with a preview of an election-related story that she's working on for the next print issue of Indiana Lawyer. While many Hoosiers are preparing to vote in the general election this month, a certain group of people will be excluded from casting their ballots. According to a recent sentencing project report, 4.6 million people are barred from voting in the 2022 general election due to their felony convictions. That's one in every 50 adults. Three out of four of those people are living in their communities, having fully completed their sentences or remaining supervised while on probation or parole. 48 states bar people with felony convictions from voting for some period of time, whether temporarily or permanently. For the upcoming issue of Indiana Lawyer, I'll be looking at what Indiana law specifically says about voting rights for prisoners. Are there plans in place in Indiana to ensure that incarcerated voters can submit their ballots? Stay tuned to find out. Thanks, Katie. All right, that's it for this week's headlines. As always, visit TheIndianaLawyer.com for the most up-to-date news from the state and national legal communities. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear a breakdown of the major issues that will be at play in next week's election. Taft. Today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For today's extended interview, I'm joined in the studio by Pete Seat, a vice president at Bose Public Affairs Group in Indianapolis. Pete, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. A little bit of your bio. He sent us this sentence, and I love it. According to Pete, he's more than a guy with a rhyming name. (laughs) He's the only child of immigrant parents, and his previous work has included stints as executive director of strategic communications and talent development for the Indiana Republican Party, communications director for Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb's campaign, senior project manager at Hathaway Strategies, communications director for the Indiana Republican Party, communications director for Dan Coates' 2010 Senate campaign, and deputy assistant press secretary to President George W. Bush. Pete is also the author of a book, The War on Millennials, airing grievances and authoring solutions through the eyes of America's next generation of leaders and he's a graduate of the University of Arizona. Did I miss anything? No, you (laughs) covered it in excruciating detail, but I appreciate it. I will just say real quick on that, Pete Seat's more than a guy, or yeah, more than a guy with a rhyming name. Uh, It was actually the first line I used in my application for the Atlantic Council Millennium Fellowship. (laughs) And I was one of 21 people chosen from 655 applicants around the world. Wow. Based on that line alone. They, they tell told you that? me, yeah. they're like, as soon as we read that, we didn't care about the rest of the application. We're, <laughs> we're sold. That's a lesson to younger people listening right there, right? Yeah, show some, some personality. Yeah. Have some fun. All right. Well, Pete, this episode is airing on November 2nd, which is less than a week before the midterm election. So we brought you in to discuss some of the key issues that will be at play on November 8th. So I'm going to start with a, a broad question and you can take it where you want to. But what? are the issues that voters care most about this election cycle? 
Well, it depends, I think, on your partisan affiliation at the moment. Uh, Republicans, conservatives are most focused on inflation and the economy, what they're feeling in their wallets and the conversations that they're having at home with their families on a daily basis. Uh, And we see this everywhere. The the cost of groceries going up, the cost of gas being very volatile. It goes up one week, down the next week. Uh, the difficulty in, in purchasing cars and vehicles, uh, equipment that need semiconductor chips because of the supply chain issues. And we've been living all of this. And Republicans have been driving that message. Democrats, on the other hand, have been trying to avoid mm. that message. They have been focused on social issues. Ironically enough, because usually it's the Republicans that are focused on social issues. (laughs) But here you have Democrats who are trying to push the narrative about abortion in light of the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe versus Wade. That might in some places uh, tip the balance and, uh, you know, tip the scales on some election results. But I think by and large, what you're going to see is solid Republican victories, particularly in Indiana. I think also around the country, because you have a a Democrat president, a Democrat administration and a Democrat Washington, D.C. that has not tackled the challenge of inflation and what so many Americans are feeling and the pain that they're feeling each and every day of their lives. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up that point about inflation and abortion, because that's kind of something I've heard a little bit just in reading about this election is some candidates saying, you know, it's not abortion that people are asking me about it. It's inflation. So, I mean, we've been talking about abortion since June, right? But do you think that's really what's on the ballot this time around? It's really interesting. So one thing you didn't mention, I I was recently a candidate for office myself. I ran for state treasurer and I was fascinating, fascinated as a candidate on the trail by the types of questions I was being asked. Yeah. And it wasn't those questions that you expect. Mm -hmm. The abortion, the CRT, the things that tend to dominate the national dialogue were not questions that we were being asked on the on the trail. Now, Mind you, I was running for state treasurer, which has nothing to do with any of those issues, but it still was top of mind for a lot of people and how they consume their news and what they pay attention to. But you see, you know, here, Indiana Democrats, we're in a conservative state. We're in a Republican state. Mm -hmm. And I think you're slightly crazy um, and definitely unserious if you don't realize that. But a lot of Democrats, the statewide candidates in particular, are putting a huge emphasis on the abortion issue. They think it's going to lead to desperately needed electoral victories. I don't think that's the case. Hmm. Maybe in a couple of state legislative seats, um, particularly those around suburban Indianapolis, they might be successful, but it really, really is. I mean, when I travel a lot, I was just in Dearborn County uh, last night. Um, I've been in Elkhart County and Lake County and other places around the state in, in recent weeks. And it's, you know, now, mind you, I'm going to Republican events, but I'm not hearing a lot about SB1. Yeah. I'm hearing about inflation. I'm hearing about how much it costs them to get to that event and how much it costs to feed their family. People are frustrated and they're fed up and they want to go to the polls and make sure that their voice is heard. Sure. 
So let's look at a, a couple specific races. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the Indiana Senate race. We have Todd Young, the Republican incumbent, going up against Tom McDermott. He's the mayor of Hammond, running as a Democrat. And, you know, like you said, Indiana is pretty reliably a Republican state. But at least from what I've observed, McDermott certainly has support behind him. So, I mean, do you think there's a chance he could flip one of our Senate seats blue? Well, look, any Democrat is going to have at least 30 percent of the vote. So sure. I, you could claim that's some support behind him. I found it interesting the way you phrase that running as a Democrat, because Tom McDermott's father, Republican, former mayor of Hammond. Oh, interesting. And it's always been interesting to people that Tom became a Democrat. And to be clear, I will not be voting for him. <laughs> I've met him uh, a couple times. I'm, I'm a Lake County native, so oh. um, we've got some region blood in, in, in us both. But his persona really fits this unfiltered, vitriolic political environment that we live in. Mm. His hang up is the fact that he's a Democrat. I'm not saying that he would win if he were a Republican, but when I do watch him, he's got a podcast where, you know, he curses repeatedly on every episode, you watch that and you're like, wow, that's unfortunately a lot of what people want these days, right? Sure. They just, they want that that unvarnished uh, communicating style. And, and he does bring that. The fact of the matter though is he's on the wrong side of the issues. And I used the word unserious earlier. I think anyone who sees uh, this race going in any direction other than Todd Young's reelection sure. is unserious. <laughs> Todd Young has done an incredible job. He has proven himself time and time again as a thoughtful, serious legislator, someone who has taken the lead on issues that no one else is talking about. You know, he he talks about Yemen and the humanitarian crisis, the largest, biggest humanitarian crisis in the world. And that may not be something that every Hoosier is talking about or ever considered, but it's an important issue that has ripple effects, not just in the Middle East, but across uh, the globe. So Todd's done, I think, a great job. He's run a strong campaign. Uh, his ads thus far have have been on point. He's really focused on going back to the economy, that semiconductor issue. Uh, he helped uh, push forward the CHIPS Act, which is bringing a lot right. of investment uh, back, particularly to the state of Indiana. And I think I think he's going to uh, be successful and be our our senior senator for another six years. One thing that Tom McDermott has kind of become known for, in a way, this isn't an official term, but I think of him as the marijuana guy, right? You know, he I had, knew where this was going. <laughs> he, you know, he had that video. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen the video, he he's essentially and correct me if I'm wrong, but he does light up a joint. Is that correct? Yeah, in the state of Illinois. Right. Yes. In Illinois, where it is legal. And, you know, the reason I bring that up is because we have President Biden at the same time saying he's going to pardon federal marijuana, simple possession convictions. The governor saying, no, I can't do that here because it's federal law. Mm-hmm. All of this kind of comes as an interesting time. But, you know, I noticed when you were talking about the issues voters care about, marijuana wasn't something you brought up. I mean, do you think that's a, a big issue or something maybe we're going to come back to later? I, I don't think it's a big issue. You know, I, I chuckled um, when you called him the marijuana guy. <laughs> I don't know why a candidate would want to be known as that. Uh, I mean, it, it's not a top of mind in, in any of the polling that I've seen privately and publicly. That's not an issue. You know, when sure. you ask voters, what is top of mind? What are you thinking about, talking about and uh, concerned about every single day uh, of the week? Maybe it's like two or three percent. It's at the bottom of the list. Mm. 
people are talking about the economy and about healthcare and about energy and about education. Like that's not something it tends to get magnified, I think, sure. because of what we've seen in na- neighboring states like Illinois, like Michigan. Folks like Tom McDermott tried to make hay out of it. But I'm not hearing people in Spencer and Perry County sure. asking about marijuana. Okay, one more question about this particular race, and then mm-hmm. we'll move on to another one. Todd Young did not get a public endorsement from former President Trump. Was he courting one? Should we, you know, make anything of that? You know, there certainly have been several federal candidates who got Trump's backing, but but he didn't. So what do we make of that? I, I can't speak to courtship. Sure. Other than to say my uh, attempts to contact Emma Watson have been <laughs> unsuccessful for nearly a decade. <laughs> but there and and this is not a criticism. I think any anyone would say this. There's rarely a rhyme or reason to what race Donald Trump gets involved in. Sure. Uh, Sometimes he will endorse the most random of candidates (laughs) and the most obscure of races because he happened to see a tweet that was, you know, that he was tagged in and and it piques his interest and, you know, we're off to the races. So I, I would not read much, if anything, into it. Todd Young has run his race uh, on his pace and it will be successful come election day. Zooming out a little bit, what's your prediction? Do you think Republicans take back one or both houses of Congress? Definitely the House of Representatives. Uh, The Senate is, I think, in toss-up territory. Mm. Uh, It's really going to come down to, I mean, the latest I've heard, it could very well come down to Pennsylvania Mm, interesting. Uh, between John Fetterman and Dr. Oz. Um, you know, Fetterman, it was hard to watch. Uh, I don't know how many folks watched the debate between Fetterman, the lieutenant governor, a former mayor of a small town, and, and Dr. Oz. But, you know, Fetterman had a stroke, which oh, yeah. we know. And it was very difficult to watch him attempt to articulate mm. his stance on issues. He, he is having some problems with that and piecing together words and, and coherent sentences. And to the point where his campaign actually in their pre-debate memo, you know, you send these out when you're on a campaign to set expectations. And typically you're trying to lower expectations. <laughs> they tried to lower them to the point where they said – he will like mumble and jumble his words and mash things together. And wow. I mean, they were like pretty much if he's able to say good morning or good afternoon, whenever it was uh, held, like you should be impressed. Wow. And and I think a lot of voters didn't necessarily know that, you know, they will make their decision about whether or not that plays a role uh, in, in how they choose their senator. But it could that, that that's what it could come down to. The balance of the U.S. Senate could come down to that debate and the health condition of of the Democrat nominee. You also have a very important race in Nevada between the incumbent senator and if if I could say her name, I would, Catherine something. She's running against Adam Laxalt, who was a former attorney general there. It seems to be trending in the Republican direction. And of course, Georgia, you've got the incumbent Raphael uh, um, Warnock and uh, the reverend and and. Uh, former football star Herschel Walker, which has gotten a lot of attention in recent weeks, too. But I think when it comes to the U.S. House of Representatives, I think Republicans are definitely in the driver's seat and uh, we'll see a Kevin McCarthy speakership uh, come Mm. January. Interesting. 
So if that happens and Republicans get at least one of them, if, if not both, what's that mean for you know Biden's agenda? Is, is it official, you know, effectively just kind of paused at that point? It depends on what he's able to work on uh, with Republicans on. Sure. Right. I, I don't know where those areas of, of commonality and interest might lie, but you can rest assured that the majority of his agenda is going to be dead on arrival. Yeah. That the House of Representatives is going to ensure that it does not move forward. But keep in mind, there's still a lot of power. If the Democrats maintain control of the Senate, they can still get judges approved. Sure. Right. And they can fill some of these seats uh, in, in, in various courts across the country. So it doesn't mean everything grinds to a halt for two years. My unsolicited advice to fellow Republicans would be let's not if that does come to fruition, whether it's just one chamber or both, don't just be the party of no. Sure. Let's put stuff on the table. Let's actually engage uh, in the debate and and negotiate if if at all possible uh, to get some things done. The 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 constant gridlock is it's it's good when you're stopping bad stuff, but there are challenges that need to be addressed ac- across this country, and we cannot afford another two years of nothing. So I I hope that a a very strong pro economy agenda is put forward and pushed by Republicans um, in the House, if not in the Senate as well. And and perhaps um, Biden will come to his senses and um, join on board with some of those initiatives. You brought up a point that I wanted to hit on um, was that, you know, the Senate and the judicial confirmation process in years past, courts have gotten less attention, certainly, than the other two branches of government. But especially this summer, since the abortion decision, and you know, even in the year before that, courts have really been under scrutiny. Do you think that's impacting voters at all? You know, someone saying, I'm going to vote for a Republican or a Democrat because I want this kind of judge? I don't know if it does now, because the biggest issue was Roe v. Wade. Right. That is what was driving. I mean, that was a large part of why Donald Trump was elected in 2016 was we need a Republican president because we've got some aging Supreme Court justices who will likely either retire or, unfortunately, in the case of a few, pass away. Um, They are lifetime appointments after all. And we want to make sure that it's a Republican who is nominating Uh, conservative jurists uh, to the bench. And that worked. You know, I think probably one of the best things that campaign did was put out a list of list of finalists of people that he would choose from if he were elected president and a vacancy appeared on the Supreme Court. So I, I don't get the sense that it's there anymore. But, you know, maybe in in the eyes and minds of some it is, but I don't get that palpable sense that I got a few years ago. Right. So let's look at one of the statewide races we have here in Indiana, um, the Secretary of State election. That seems to be the one that's that's getting the attention between you have Diego Morales on the Republican side, Destiny Wells on the, the Democrat side. Morales' campaign has, has seen some controversy. And so I've seen some reports that um, state Democrats think, you know, this could be our chance to put one of our own in a statewide office for the first time in, I think, like a a decade or so. I mean, what do you think of that theory? 
We'll see. Um, sure. <laughs> you know, I think the word I used earlier was desperate. They're they're desperate for a victory. They need something. They need to show momentum because the Democratic Party in the state of Indiana is withering on the vine. That's just the reality. You have super majorities in both the state house and the state senate. Every statewide elected office is held by a Republican. Uh, seven of nine U.S. House seats, both U.S. Senate seats, eighty-nine percent of elected county f- officials are Republican. This is a Republican state. I can't say it over and over again. So they need to show something. I think just from a political standpoint, they have been smart to put the limited number of eggs they have into that basket mm-hmm. rather than, you know, try and spread it out and spread the wealth and say, oh, we're going to we're going to try that and try this and try this. Like you guys don't have the resources, the bandwidth, you know, the energy to to try to run the table. You, you got to focus on one thing. And it was always assumed that's what they were going to focus on, regardless of who the nominee was for the Republicans. But as I do travel the state regularly, almost weekly, I keep hearing the same thing, which is none of the attacks that Democrats are leveling against the Republican nominee are resonating. In some cases, they're not even being received. You know, that's something that we really have yet to truly grapple with is how Hoosiers, how Americans receive their news. And I, for example, I pretty much only watch, I don't have cable, I watch all streaming programming, Amazon Mm -hmm. Prime, Hulu, whatever. I see nothing. Yeah. I see no political ads. What I do see, I see on Twitter or Facebook or a friend texts me. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. And so whether whether these ads would persuade people or not, I don't know. But I think most are going to go into the ballot box, into the booth, and they're going to vote for the Republican candidates if they're a Republican. And we'll see a, a, a clean sweep um, on Election Day. One of the reasons that Morales has kind of made headlines is he skipped a, a couple of mm-hmm. debates saying, you know, he prefers to go out, meet with voters face to face. What what do we make of that? Is that a, a big deal or do, do debates, you know, just distract from from everything else? So I, I'm, I'll answer it more broadly sure. uh, than specific to him, because it's not just in that race. We've seen both Democrats. Andre Carson has refused to debate his right. Republican opponent. Um, so it's it's not it's not just the secretary of state's race. But. I personally am entirely in favor of debates. I think that our elected officials and those seeking elected office should be accountable. However, just like town halls, debates have become nothing but performative. Right. They're all about optics. You know, town halls, when they were conducted for a while, it was it was for voters to come and shout and scream and post something on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about having a substantive dialogue with your elected representative. You were there to shame and embarrass. So why would anyone put themselves in that position? Similar to debates, I, I saw something uh, just the other day that that I thought was really um, well stated. You know, what do you remember from presidential debates? You mm-hmm. remember the stubble on Nixon. You remember George H.W. Bush looking at his watch. You remember Al Gore's, you know, the size. Mm-hmm. That's what you remember. Yeah. Do you remember anything any of those people said? Mm. 
And so here we are, like, you know, the, the push from these different organizations that are trying to put these events on is, you know, we want to have a substantive debate, but all the coverage and all the attention is who hit who hardest and who had the best zinger. And, and that's all theatrical. And it really is a disservice ultimately to the process. And I think some candidates have, have come to that conclusion and said, it's just not worth it. So to kind of wrap us up, We've talked, you know, about some of the big issues here in Indiana and, and even nationwide. Is there anything, any issue, any race flying under the radar that you think could be noteworthy that people aren't paying attention to? I'd say two things real quick. A specific race is the congressional district, uh, first congressional district up in northwest Indiana. And it's yeah. not just me being a Lake County homer. OK, <laughs> this is a legitimate race. I've never in my lifetime and probably multiple lifetimes beyond that, seen the kind of attention that we have seen on that district. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars pouring in to the first congressional district race. You have an incumbent Democrat, first-termer, Frank Mervan, running against Republican uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, in the Army, Jennifer Ruth Green. And she's incredibly impressive. I think is probably giving him more than a run for his money. The challenge in that district has always been demographics mm. um, and the influence of the Chicago media market. Right. Having grown up there, it's all Chicago media. That's all you ever hear. But because of the success of Republicans in the state of Indiana, we've been drawing a lot of conservative-minded people from Illinois who are tired of high taxes and, and, and the lifestyle of Illinois, and they're coming over, and that district is changing. We'll see what happens, um, but I definitely think it's on the right track. But more broadly, I think what we're, we're not really paying enough attention to is school board races. Mm. This is driving an incredible, I've never seen it, driving so much interest and passion and involvement all over the state. You know, I go to Lincoln Day dinners. It was usually your U.S. senator, your congressman, you know, your statewide elected officials having yard signs outside the event. Now I'm seeing a, a, a plethora of school board candidates, and I don't, you know, I don't know who any of these people are. I'm not in those communities, but people, you know, Hoosiers residents are really, really, really focused on those races, and I think that's something that has not received enough attention or coverage, uh, just because you know it's it's not those. Those races that we think really change the dynamics of our communities, the Congress and, and you know, it's not the presidency this year, but, you know, those bigger races when it's really those school board races that are going to make a huge difference in the years to come. Mm -hmm. All right. That'll do it for this week's extended interview. Thanks again, Pete, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And just a note for our listeners, please don't take any of my questions to be an endorsement one way or the other. They're just meant to start the conversation. As always, if you want to listen to previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, head to our website or to your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time. <laughs>